This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith fam, I am very excited to welcome aboard the CEO of Meetup, the biggest social media platform for building community, both virtually and in the real world. He's a brilliant thinker and builder. We're going to talk about a topic that any listener to this podcast knows is my absolute favorite, and that is community. Uh, But let me just set this up. So we've been talking lately about uh, the book of Leviticus. That's sort of the the last several episodes. And we're actually up to the section where the Bible just like lists all the holidays on the calendar. And my favorite one, the one that always intrigues me the most, is the holiday of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's when Jews today build a hut in their backyard and live in it for seven days. And it's also the one, famously, that Jack Donaghy on 30 Rock, he uses as his example when he's like negotiating with an employee who wants time off for, and I quote, any Jewish holiday, no matter how ridiculous. And the truth is, if you read the Bible straight up, it might even sound ridiculous, right? I mean, it's the only holiday without a story. Passover has the Exodus, Pentecost, Shavuos has the Revelation at Sinai, Purim has the story of Esther and Haman, Hanukkah has the Maccabees, but Sukkot got no story. It's a holiday about nothing. It's like the Seinfeld of holidays. The only thing the Bible tells us about Sukkot is that it commemorates when the Israelites lived in huts while they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. I mean, is that something to celebrate, just living in huts? But I think the answer is that what we're celebrating is precisely not something miraculous, We're not celebrating a spectacle like the pyrotechnics of the 10 plagues, the majesty of the Exodus. What we're celebrating is something far more normal, but in many ways, for that reason, far more powerful. And that's community. We're celebrating the simple joy of people living together, of building communities, of building a nation, of building a society. Because when all is said and done, there's nothing more precious than being and building together. And if there's one thing contemporary Western society needs at this moment, it's the rebirth, the rejuvenation of community. And so to unpack all of this, I brought on one of the literal world experts on doing this, a guy who quite literally does this for a living. He's the former CEO of Investopedia and now has taken his talents to become the CEO of Meetup. He's David Siegel. David, thank you so much for being here. Pressure is on. I can handle it, though. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's rock and roll, baby. Okay, so so David, before we talk about the nature of community and where the concept is going in 2022, I want to start with you. Like, what's your what's your origin story? What's like your Uncle Ben moment? How do you find yourself as the CEO of Meetup? Ooh, okay. So there was a time in my life where I didn't have community. It was after I graduated from college. When people are in college, you know, they have these amazing communities, and I was you know, modern Orthodox community in college. And, and, and then I graduated from college. I went to the big city. And of course I was in the Upper West Side, like many different singles are, but I still felt like alone. And there were Shabbos meals where I was just kind of by myself and didn't have any plans. And then Saturday nights, I didn't really know what to do. And I really felt this like loneliness and this absence of community. And it was, it was really painful. Went on, got married, Joined a community, everything was really wonderful, but I always been a part of Meetup because Meetup is the world's largest platform for building community. And um, it was actually founded after, right after 9-11. I could go into our company's founding story at some point if, you, if you'd like to hear. 
And then a person who is on the board of WeWork, his name is Michael Eisenberg. He reached out to me and he said, David, friend of the pod, friend of the podcast. Exactly. I thought he might be. That's why I referenced his name. He reached out to me and he said, David, would you like to become the first outside CEO of Meetup? And I said, my God, even after selling Investopedia, I was planning on taking a whole year off and really just figure out what I want to do with, with my life and potentially was not going to become a CEO of a company again. But I said, I couldn't turn that up because the power of community in changing people's lives in curing the loneliness epidemic that exists today in this world was just so important to me. And it's been the, the greatest job I could ever imagine the last three and a half years, despite the pandemic when, or maybe even because of the pandemic, when there's been such a loss of community as well. So I actually want to get back to WeWork in a second, but first I actually, I do want to hear that story of Meetup because I feel, because if, as I recall, like it, it, it relates, it's like founded in the wake of 9-11. Like it has this really interesting origin story. So yeah. what's the story of Meetup? Sure. So our founder, Scott Heiferman, right after 9-11 was in his lobby in a state of, of shock, just like everyone in New York and the United States around the world was in just total shock. And he went over to someone and introduced himself and he said, hey, you live in the building too. What floor do you live on? And the person lived on the fifth floor. And he's like, I live on the fifth floor. And he said, oh, you must've just moved to the fifth floor. He said, no, no, no. I've been living here for like three years. He's like, oh my God, <laughs> you've been living on my floor and you never met before. He met another person who also lived on the fifth floor and they had never met before. And he just said to himself, or he said out loud, actually, it shouldn't take tragedy to build community. And he devoted his life to building Meetup, to building a platform that today has over 300,000 communities in 190 countries around the world. We have uh, 10,000 events, community events every single day. And it was an amazing mitzvah, shall we say, an accomplishment that this good Jewish boy did. And uh, I'm very lucky to be able to contribute to uh, the building of community because of the loneliness epidemic. And the loneliness epidemic is just terrifying. 46% of people, not occasionally, not sometimes, but regularly, feel lonely regularly. And among people who are Gen Zers, Gen Zers, you know, the youngest, most vulnerable people today, you know, late teens, early 20s, it's actually 62% of Gen Zers regularly feel lonely. And my goal in life, frankly, in, in terms of the, the, my work life is to help to cure the loneliness epidemic. Wow. So, so I feel like WeWork is such a fascinating case study here, right? Because Adam Newman makes this breathtaking visionary case for why WeWork was more than just like a real estate play or a co-working service. It was about community. We all wanted to belong to something, to be part of a family. And he raised a ton of money on that vision. But I, I kind of feel like the Achilles heel in that vision wasn't so much that he was wrong about what people want as that he was wrong that people want community to come from their work. Meaning like people absolutely want community, but they just don't want it from, but they don't want it just like from anything. Meaning it actually it actually matters where it comes from. So like just because community is something people crave doesn't mean your community-based business model is right. So does it does it matter where people find community? As someone who who literally traffics in this every single day, is the premise underlying WeWork and your local church just like the exact same thing? Or does it matter where people find this? Wow, I, I never thought of this before, but what you said really resonates. I think it's a blessing and curse to having community at work. But the, the, the blessing is, that we could say like Bidievit, like in the ideal scenario, people wouldn't have to rely on community at work because they would have community as part of synagogues, churches, PTA groups, um, sports clubs, whatever it may be. But in the absence of that, and there's a lot of absence of that, it is better to have community at work than nowhere. Now, the 
The curse, however, is that the average person stays at work, especially younger people, for only two or three years. So if your entire community is at work, there's a number of problems. Number one is you could end up staying at a company that you're actually very unhappy at just because of the fact that you have relationships with certain people that you don't want to let down. You don't want to lose your friends if your entire friend group is people at work. So that's kind of a negative you end up causing you to stay. And the other negative is if you end up leaving, you just lost that community. Now, if your community is something that can persist for a long period of time. So for example, if you live in a, a home and you're in that home for 10, 15 years and your community is your neighbors, well, that can persist for decades, potentially. Your community is a church or synagogue, mosque, your community can persist for, persist for years. So I would say in the ideal scenario, no, but we don't live in the ideal world either. So better that than certainly nothing. So I want to get like into the guts of the idea of community, right? I feel like listeners to this pod or like the millions and millions of people who use Meetup, right? Are the kind of people who, who might take for granted that community is important. But there actually is a crucial strand of Western thought that actually thought community is one of our biggest problems, right? Like take Rousseau, for example. He thinks that man is naturally good and happy, and it's precisely our interactions with others that make us miserable. Now, I think it's clear that Rousseau is wrong. Like I'm very spiritually and intellectually committed to Rousseau being wrong, but... And Hobbes would probably say the same thing about Rousseau probably being wrong as well. Right, but intellectually speaking, Rousseau is quite a serious thinker. So if you had to make the case to someone skeptical, like why is community important? Why is community good? And from your, in your, like where is community adding value? Oh my gosh. Okay, so I would say that we live two lives oftentimes and unfortunately they're two separated. They're not one life, meaning we have our personal lives and we oftentimes have our professional lives. What community does oftentimes is it bridges the gap between the personal and the professional. Let me give you an example of that. So I always go out whenever I visit a city and I talk to meetup organizers because that's what you should be doing, talking to your people. And I met with a meetup organizer when I was in San Mateo, California. And he said to me, David, I have to tell you this story. He said, I run two meetup groups. One of them is a bowling group and the other one is a career networking group. And I have to tell you, I got my last two jobs from my bowling group and I met my <laughs> best friend at the career networking group. That's amazing. And I said, oh, that just speaks to the power of community. What do I mean by that? I mean that there are serendipitous experiences, lucky things that just end up happening when you surround yourself by people because people create amazing opportunities. And that when you're, you know, if you're looking for, you know, the perfect person to marry, you don't end up finding a person. When you necessarily stop looking and you just start playing kickball or something like that, suddenly on your kickball team, you end up finding that person. So what community does in my mind is it engenders luck, mazal, these amazing things happen to you in life. So Mike Eisenberg called me up. I've had seven jobs in my life. Seven of seven have come from, from some form of community. Someone reaching out to me, me never just sending a resume in or an application in for that. So the personal and professional are so intertwined that one reinforces the other and great things could potentially happen to both. So one thing that you just said now really kind of picked at me and intrigued me, which is the, the idea that being in a community actually leads to things that you do. Like, in other words, there's, there's a participatory aspect of community. And I think one particular, one popular contemporary reading of the promise of American freedom is like the freedom to be left alone. 
right? Like part of the promise of American liberty is that you can just be. There's nothing you have to do. But as someone who's experienced community himself, so you know that to really be a part of community, there's no such thing as being in a community. Community is always something that you do. So how do we reconcile the demands of community with the sense in our American society that there's nothing you should have to do, right? How do you have a robust communal life in a world of American liberty, which is itself is a blessing, right? Well, that's the great thing about community, because what it does is it provides you with opportunity to decide to take advantage of or not take advantage of. You could be completely not a leader in any other aspects of your life, and you could love knitting for whatever reason, be a complete recluse and an introvert. But then at some point you say, hmm, I'm going to join a knitting meetup group or a knitting community, and you can lead that community. I'll tell you another quick story. There's someone that I also met with, his name is Omar Acosta, and he was a complete recluse played video games 12 hours a day, was very, very depressed. His brother said, time to start doing something. You used to enjoy rock climbing, go to a rock climbing group. He went to a group, very introverted, never a leader in anything. He went there six times and the leader had to step down because he was moving. And he said, I need you to step up and become the leader of the group. You, you've been here six times more than anyone else. Since then, he's been a leader of a community and he's been able to step up into doing something he never thought he would ever do. There's been six marriages that have come from just a rock climbing group, having nothing to do with singles or not. He's had a thousand different events. So my point is, in terms of the reconciliation between agency of do you step up or not, it gives you an opportunity to do so. And when you may not have ever done so in the past, and that's another power of community, that you could become a, a synagogue president, let's say, or you know, a church leader and you never had exhibited leadership before for whatever reason. And that translates into then confidence that you can then take to so many different other aspects of your life, which is a beautiful thing. So one of the cool things about your background is that you just have deep experience running things. And one of the stereotypes of community is just like collectivist, kind of everybody benefits, but it's this organical. But you're actually sort of the head, the individual head of something. So how do you find the experience of being the individual leader, the Lone Ranger, the hero of a business model premised on sort of collectivity, like meetup? Beyond energizing. I'm really, I think that everyone has a natural laziness to them. Everyone, certainly including myself. Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so easy to not exercise, let's say. But if you give yourself an incentive to exercise, and I'll give you the, the, the explanation of why I'm using this example, like I'm going to run a triathlon, then suddenly you set that goal for yourself. And I've done that, or run a century or do the high lifeline biking, then, then suddenly you're focused on exercise. And so for me, it's very easy for me to sit back and let other people do things. But I feel like I am my best self and who I want to be as a person when I'm in a leadership role. And, and that's what I want in life. I want to you know, be able to reach my potential, quote unquote. And I feel like when I'm leading, it forces me to be my best self. You know, the whole concept, I'm sure you've talked about on the podcast, if you have it, a Rav Zusha, that after you, one part passes away, you know, God says, I didn't expect you to be the Moses. I didn't expect you to be the, the Aaron. I expect you to be the best Rob Zusha. So like, I want to be the best David Siegel. And for me, and I'm not saying this is the case for everyone, because it's only the case for me. doesn't mean everyone should be a leader. But for me, I am my best self and when I'm a leader. And the reason for that, by the way, is because when you're leading, you have to be 
aware of your actions. You have to be aware of how you're talking, of how you're behaving, of your integrity, of doing good things, because the microscope is always on you, frankly. And that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure to feel like everyone's watching you all the time. And for a lot of people, it's not the right thing to pursue for good reason. It could be very stressful. For me, it helps to elevate me to become the person that I want to be. Because, you know, if I'm, let's say, wearing a yarmulke at work and I help someone across the street, you know, an older person, they're not going to say, oh, look at that nice boy helping someone across the street. They say, oh, look at that nice Jewish guy who's walking someone across the street. So I try to do as many things in my life that will help to elevate kind of who I am. And I think being a leader is one of them. What's the biggest threat to community in America in 2022? I mean, there's no doubt that it's social media and it's been the, it's been the threat for a long time. And the reason why is, is the same reason as why soda is so bad for you. So let me explain. Soda is bad for you, not because soda is necessarily so bad. It's bad, it has sugar, it's not so good. But what it does is it replaces drinking water, which is extremely important. Hydration is very important. Most people walk around dehydrated all the time. So what do I mean by that example? What I mean is that people think that they have community because of social media. So it's not that they think they don't and that they're therefore need to start looking for it. They think that they're liking you know, their friends and they're using Facebook and that's a real relationships, et cetera. But that's not, for me at least, maybe for other people again, different, but for me, it's not a depth of relationships. So the reason why it's so dangerous is because it prevents people from oftentimes seeking out authentic, real communities in and of itself. Gosh, it's kind of nice. I maintain relationships. I read interesting things. I, I, it's wonderful. But it's that it ends up taking time is a zero sum game and it gives you a false sense of community. It's like idol worship. I mean, you could say, you know, in certain ways that it gives you a false sense of like who God actually is. That's why idol worship is so bad per se versus like no worship. Idol worship is even worse because then you don't actually worship the God. So that's what I would say in terms of, you know, the biggest danger by far. I feel like what social what social media does it's almost like there's there's like a little bit of a bait and switch. Like I think you know you'll you'll hear people talk about sort of like the toxic nature of interaction on social media. Like dunking is so bad and it is. Like dunking on people on social media is bad. Like you're a bad person if you do that. But what people forget is like that that doesn't come from nowhere. Right, the reflection of human nature. And it's it's also like a regular and in some cases like important feature of small town life. Like if you read anything about American small town life in like the 18th century, 19th century, long before the invention of digital culture. So, I mean, it sounds like it just sounds like what we what today you would call cancel culture. So read the Scarlet Letter like that's a book about cancel culture. The difference is that cancel culture is something that is both sensible and workable in sort of like small town America, right? Where everybody knows everything about each other. And if you step out of line, you will be dunked on. And that's sort of like the disadvantage or that's the bad side. That's the, that's the stick. But the carrot, the bo- the upside of that is that because everybody knows you, everybody loves you. Like everybody ultimately cares about you. And you have these relationships of mutual responsibility that binds you together. And so that's the advantage of small town life is that you kind of have these incredibly thick relations. The urban life in America has traditionally been the opposite, right? Like you don't have those relationships of love and mutual responsibility. Nobody knows who you are. That's the carrot. The stick is that, first of all, you get the benefits of scale. And also nobody knows who you are. Like you don't have to be bothered by anybody, right? So what social media does in a way is it takes the worst of urban living and the worst of small town living and 
eliminates all of their virtues and combines them together. So you get all of the the anonymity and and hugeness and scale of urban living, but without any of the positive benefits of like nobody bothering you. And then you get all of the worst parts of small town life about people dunking on you all the time, but with none of the mitigating factors of people actually loving you and caring about you. And what you end up with is like this crazy virtual world where you get the worst of everything in America, right? No, all right. It's it's like at Meetup we say we use technology to get people off of technology. That's amazing. Because <laughs> you have to be where people are. We're not going to go like shouting from rooftops, join a meetup group, join a meetup Not listening to join a group, meetup group. We have to use technology, use our apps, use our website. And the goal is to then take it and shut it down and close it off and then be with people in person together. That's kind of the goal. And, and I always like to try to talk about how like the concept almost of like Shabbos, right? Where it's like the cessation from technology. So it's just the it's all about the cessation leaving technology for a 25 hour period and how kind of very incredibly valuable that is for so many people. Meetup is like you know the, the Sabbath in, in, in kind of many ways, and that's also why like it resonates. You could see again the the, the blending of the personal and professional just how I approach kind of Meetup and, and and work as well. How did the the pandemic and then. Like, I don't know what to call it, the end of the pandemic. I guess we're not like technically, uh, I'm about to fly to Israel. I have to get a PCR test still, right? But like, how did sort of like the rise and fall of COVID-19 affect your view of community in America in 2022 or in 20, the 2020s? So we started seeing in, in February, late February, you know, 2020, every single event, like 99% of events got canceled in China and every RSVP got canceled. And like, okay, it's going to be like SARS. It's going to be, you know, like swine flu. It's just going to be a China thing. It's not going to come to anywhere. Then suddenly like in Italy, we're like, what's going on in Italy? Why like every single thing being canceled in Italy? How did it go from China to Italy so fast? Whoa. So um, then finally, obviously came to the States. A number of people went to the APAC conference at our company. We were one of the first people to. Oh, no. <laughs> including myself. You guys are like ground zero for COVID. Ground zero. Ground zero for COVID. <laughs> we actually had the first case, the second case in Mount Sinai Hospital in New York of COVID. Um, unfortunately, the person had to go to the hospital. Our company shut down. So Meetup, the biggest in-person company who was using a WeWork facility in a WeWork office got shut down. All these articles came out. Meetup, the in-person company, <laughs> shuts down because of COVID. WeWork infested with COVID, you know, don't write anything they can about, about, about WeWork. I'm like, we went virtual. And oh, by the way, this is the exact month that we were also in the throes of selling the company and divesting out of WeWork. So I got everyone together and I said, what's our mission? Is our mission IRL in real life? Or is our mission about keeping people connected? And there are some people that have been around for a while who said, David, we're about getting people off of technology. We, we, we have to be the IRL and we can't allow Zoom meetup groups because that's just not something we've done for 20 years. Our founder in a big WeWork event took a virtual reality glasses, threw them on the floor and started stomping them in sledgehammer and said, we will never be VR. We will never be AR. <laughs> I got everyone together and I said, we need to do this because we don't know how long it's going to last. This could last for a couple of months even, let alone a couple of years. Who knew that? or more. And we enabled for the first time groups to be able to be virtual only groups. And thank you, God, that we did because people's need for meetup was only greater during isolation. People needed community even more when they couldn't go out and do anything. Since that time, we've had over 5 million online events. 
Wow. Over 30, 40 million people have participated in online events. And what's cool is that, you know, I went, I talked to an organizer of an ecstatic dance meetup group, you know, cause I love ecstatic dance. Right. <laughs> and, and she told me she was in Kansas city. She had like, you know, in person, she'd have three or four people that would do, go to the group. Now that's online. She's got like 30 people from 20 different countries, all doing ecstatic dance together. And as we stand today, this is dancing. This is dancing while you're on ecstasy. Uh, hopefully just uh, natural, natural ecstasy. Exuberant dancing. I love it. I'm with you. Exuberance, exuberance. I was not familiar with ecstatic dance. It sounds yeah, awesome. Right. <laughs> so, um, and uh, and now today we're 78% as of literally today in person and we're 22% wow. online, except from Florida and Texas where it's like 99% because like COVID never happened there in the first place. Do you find that there's like a stickiness to virtual events? Like, do people find that, hey, now that I've experienced this, like they're act- here's something that I like about virtual events or are people just like eager to get done with that? Right. So listen, the stat should tell you a year ago, we were 26% in person. Today we're 78% in person. So what does that tell you? Wow. It tells you there's such a thirst. There's such a need, such a desire to get back in person. For many people that are living in more isolated areas, or if let's say you're the parent of ADHD children and you live in Albany, New York, and there's no parent of ADHD support group, but there's 10 other, 20 other, 50 other all around the world. Now you have the opportunity to join that and you're going to stick with virtual. And that's going to be really powerful because you could find your people. So the more niche a particular interest is, the greater the opportunity is for online because you find your people. Because it may not be those people in the city that you're in or the remote location that you're in. But for broader type opportunities and for real, in my opinion, bonding, that's where in-person is always the most powerful. And so we're seeing a huge growth, but, but online will stay forever because there's such an important use case for online. And what I love about online actually is it gives people exposure to people who are totally different than them, different socioeconomic groups, which is really important because the more exposure that you have, another great thing about community, community decreases xenophobia. It decreases hate, it decreases racism. Why? decreases ageism, which is such a big problem in the world, because you're exposed and you're around people who are different than you. And by learning about people who are different than you, you start realizing we're not actually so different. And that's something that's really powerful and community drives that. Okay. So last question. I've always been curious about this. Like Meetup, ha- you could do anything on Meetup. I mean, it's the, the range of things that people do is staggering. What has been for you the most interesting or unexpected area of life or area of enjoyment where people have found community around it, that you've been like, how do people, like, how did this bring people together? So what a great question. For me, it's the interest in many people in finding people who are going through some of the similar type things that they go through. So for example, what I mean by that, what's been surprising is how niche a lot of meetup groups can get. So for example, let's say there's a a hiking group in Brooklyn, then women will split off from the hiking group and say, let's create the women's hiking group. And then within the women's hiking group, there'll be a number of lesbian women. They want to like bond with each other and go hiking with each other. And they'll say, let's have the lesbian women's hiking group in Brooklyn. And then within the lesbian women's hiking group, there could be 20 people. They could be like six photographers. Now you have the lesbian photographer women's hiking group of Brooklyn. And then within that group, there might be, you know, a number (laughs) of people who are black and you have the black lesbian women's photographer hiking group of Brooklyn. What I mean by that, that's surprising already to me is people think oftentimes that they are the only person like themselves and that they're the only person that's like going through something. We have so many LGBTQ groups, for example, that have been very powerful and helpful in helping people to gain awareness about and comfort in who they really are. So to be able to find people who have gone through 
a lot of the same experiences you've gone through, to me, that's kind of like always powerful and always surprising to me how kind of niche some of these groups can actually get, but how sometimes the most, those are the most powerful groups that could exist as well. What a beautiful answer. Okay, so very, very, very last question. What's coming up on the David Siegel train? Like, where, where's this rocket ship going? What do you got coming up? Plug something for me. Plug something. Okay, so I happen to have a book that came out a couple of months ago. It's called Decide and Conquer. And it's really all about a lot of things we talked about. It's about building community. It's about the WeWork story and the number of really interesting anecdotes about my experiences with Adam Newman in that. I never wanted to write a book that was just a boring business book about leadership or community. I needed a crazy story and series of stories that would really engage people. And that's why I decided to write the book. And I started the book in, in March of 2020 when the pandemic hit, that was kind of my goal for myself. And it just came out. And uh, you know, if people are interested, they could listen to it because the audio version is, is quite excellent as well. Decide and Conquer, it's out, I'm, I'm ordering, I'm in. Everybody pick it up wherever books are sold. This is really exciting. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Ari. What a note to go out on. I mean, I love that. You're never as alone as you think. But the flip side of that is that you're only as alone as you let yourself be because finding your people, building a community, it takes work. It takes investment, commitment, and nearly always takes a willingness to come together with people that won't share your values on some other axis of the human experience. You know, you need to be actively willing to tolerate difference in the name of unity. So community, in other words, is one of the great gifts in the history of the human condition. But like all wonderful things, it doesn't come free. If you want it, you need to put in the effort, the good faith effort, one might say, required to make it flourish. But if you do, I guarantee that your life will be vastly richer for it. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, then please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts, and give us a rating, five stars only, because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at soulshopstudios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.